This morning, the scripture reading is from Luke 17, 20 to 37 from the Common English Bible. Pharisees asked Jesus when God's kingdom was coming. He replied, God's kingdom isn't coming with signs that are easily noticed, nor will people say, look here, it is, look there, it is. Don't you see, God's kingdom is already among you. Then Jesus said to the disciples, the time will come when you will long to see one of the days of the human one, and you won't see it. People will say to you, look there, look here. Don't leave or go chasing after them. The human one will appear on his day in the same way that a flash of lightning lights up the sky from one end to the other. However, first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be during the days of the human one. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, in the days of Lot, people were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, and building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from the heaven and destroyed them all. That's the way it will be on the day the human one is revealed. On that day, those on the roof whose possessions are in the house shouldn't come down to grab them. Likewise, those in the field shouldn't turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to preserve their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on the night two people will be in the same bed, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken and the other left. The disciples asked, where, Lord? Jesus said, the vultures gather wherever there's a dead body. Good morning. My name is Megan, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. And since the beginning of this year, we have been taking a journey through the Gospel of Luke, the teachings of Jesus. Um, when I kind of outlined a series on the Gospel of Luke, one of the things I tried to do was ask myself, what stories and teachings would be representative of the entire scope of the kinds of things that Jesus said and did and taught? And you know, most of those stories and teachings, you, you might have noticed by now, fall into two broad camps. Um, you have stories like the story we explored last week that are really just kind of touching, profound stories of this woman crying on Jesus' feet. And then you have all these teachings that are really practical. Um, the couple weeks before we talked about money, we talked about status and greatness and how do we define it. But every once in a while, Jesus pops off something that is so strange that you, you have to imagine his disciples are listening to him wondering, like, what is Jesus smoking? <laughs> like, where did this come from? Like, suddenly he's talking about floods, he's talking about sulfur, he's talking about vultures and human beings disappearing. And it's not clear what he means, but it sounds really alarming. I mean, what, what happened to nice Jesus that says it's all about love and is nice to kids and popular dinner parties? Like, where did this teaching come in the scope of everything else we've been talking about? 
It's worth keeping in mind that the same Jesus that was wise enough to tell us that the whole law is fulfilled in love is the Jesus who tells us he knows something about the future. Now, as we come into this text, I I would say at the start, I get it. What, What Jesus is saying here sounds really strange to most of us. To a lot of us, it sounds highly improbable, and we might not actually believe him. But given the wisdom that Jesus has showed in a whole host of other areas of life, I think he at least deserves a hearing on his own terms for what he says he knows about what's coming and what it means to be prepared for it. So as much as we're we're able, let's hold that weirdness and that strangeness and that improbability together with just the possibility that Jesus might know something about what he's talking about and try and hear him as he speaks to us. Let's take a moment in prayer. Jesus, you are so good and so wise and so surprising. In your earthly ministry, you were constantly setting people on their heels. Inviting people to small changes and big changes and a radical reorientation of life in light of huge important truths about who God is and what God is doing in the world. We pray that today as we seek to listen to your words together, that you would give us the grace by your spirit to hear you speaking clearly and to know what it is you're inviting us to. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the passage that we we just read this morning is kind of a combination of two conversations, one between Jesus and the Pharisees, the, the kind of religious leaders of the day, and one between Jesus and his own disciples. And this whole conversation starts when the Pharisees, the religious teachers, come to Jesus with a question, and their question is this in verse 20, when is God's kingdom coming? Now, Jesus has been traveling around, and the topic he's constantly preaching about and talking about is the kingdom of God, a world under God's rule. And Jesus says, in this coming kingdom that's near, that's on its way, this world under God's rule, nobody's going to harm other people anymore. Injustice is going to be gone. There's going to be right relationships between people. There's going to be nations at peace. All wounds are going to be healed. Everyone is going to have what they need economically. Jesus says God is bringing that kingdom, and it's really near. So the Pharisees say, well, Jesus, that sounds really great, but if you want us to believe you, tell us when it's going to happen, or at least tell us what kind of signs, what kind of indicators can we look for to know it actually is near. Give us something we can measure, Jesus. Give us something we can observe, something we can confirm. Now, it's not a crazy question. It's not a crazy thing for them to ask for, but there's a real irony in this question because if you look at Luke chapter 17, you'll see that what happened right before the Pharisees asked this question is Jesus just healed a bunch of people publicly. Jesus just did this work of healing. He's standing right there in front of him, so clearly the answer to when is this going to happen is now. Like, guys, did you not just see the thing that happened just right back up there up the road? 
The problem that the Pharisees are having is the problem that a lot of people had in Jesus' day and a lot of people still have today. The problem is that God acting doesn't often look like people think it's going to look. God acting somehow doesn't look like what most people expect. I hear this all the time when I talk to people about why they don't believe in God. People expect that like, if God existed and if God was going to act in the world, it would be loud and it would be dramatic and there would be some kind of trumpet and fireworks in the sky and nobody would be able to miss it. Like, nobody expects that God would be so humble and so patient that God would work out there in the corners of the world without getting any credit. Like, nobody thinks that that's how God would work. This is the Pharisees' problem. And Jesus wants them to know, he says, the kingdom of God is already invading the world. It's already advancing. It's already taking ground. It's not tomorrow's story. It's not a someday story. It's not a daydream that we're all going to sit and have together. It is today's story. This is going down starting right here, right now. The kingdom of God, the rule of God in the world is beginning to advance right now in the hearts and minds of any person who turns themselves toward Jesus. Because as soon as someone turns toward Jesus, what starts to happen is they begin to get over their own ego and they become part of a larger world healing project of gathering together to seek the interests of other people rather than themselves. That happens when people turn toward Jesus. And it might be hard for scientists to quantify. It's hard to send someone out with a clipboard and be like, here's exactly the proportion and speed on which this is happening. But just because scientists can't quantify it doesn't mean it isn't happening. Jesus says to the Pharisees, the kingdom is advancing, God is doing stuff, and if you talk to anybody watching closely, they will tell you they've seen it happen. This isn't just a future story, this is a now story. So Jesus' point to the Pharisees in this conversation is, the kingdom is already advancing and many people, including you, are overlooking it. You're missing this huge thing that God is already starting to do. But then Jesus turns to his disciples and he starts a second conversation, which I think for most of us is a lot harder. Because Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, listen, I just told the Pharisees that it's happening now and it might be subtle right now, but it won't always be that way. It won't always be this subtle. A day's gonna come when the arrival of this kingdom is going to be unmistakable. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 24 when he tells them, the human one will appear like a flash of lightning that lights up the sky. You can't miss lightning, right? Nobody's going to miss that because they weren't expecting it. It lights up everything. A moment's going to come when the subtle stage we're in right now will no longer be a subtle stage, and everybody will see it unmistakably. I think it's very interesting that Jesus chooses to have this conversation with his own followers Um, Because I know a lot of followers of Jesus, and I would say the vast majority of them are pretty comfortable with God working in small, internal, out-of-the-way places. I don't know a lot of Jesus followers who, who are uncomfortable with that thought, that God begins to work as people turn toward Jesus, and we get over ourselves, and we go out, and we do nice things, and... Um, 
But most followers of Jesus I know seem under the impression that it's always going to be that way. Jesus says in verse 22, this is such an interesting statement. He says to his disciples, a time's going to come when you will long to see one of the days of the human one and you won't see it. What does Jesus mean? He's saying to his disciples, I'm about to go away and there's going to be a time when you're going to long to go back to the days when I was working with you side by side here in the streets doing those kind of subtle things that half the population missed. But we're not going back there. That's yesterday. That's stage one of the story. But a future is coming that is going to look different than the past. We're not going back to first century manifestations of Jesus. A day is going to come when God shows up and does the work in a different way, and it's going to look like a whole different ballgame. Don't be looking backwards. Don't be longing backwards because we're going somewhere else forward. And then Jesus offers his followers, his disciples, a description of what's coming forward. You all know stage one. You know what it was like to be with me. What should you be expecting comes next? Now, when I read Jesus' description of what's coming, um, as I really just kind of sat deeply in this description the last couple weeks, it was really hard not to think about what is unfolding with Russia and Ukraine. We, we are all kind of watching right now as, with total alarm as one country, as one kingdom, invades another. Now, if you were a person in the ancient world, you would be very used to these kind of huge, sudden power shifts. Um, the, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, lived through this kind of epic power shift over and over again. They were invaded and overtaken by Assyria, and then Babylon overtook Assyria, and then Persia overtook Babylon, and eventually you get Rome, and they've been swept under by like wave after wave after wave of one kingdom coming in, pushing another out, and taking power. But the thing about being modern people is we're just not used to seeing it. And it's shocking. I mean, I think a lot of us, myself included, have been, been watching some of this coverage and looking at the pictures and just thinking, how is this possible? You mean to tell me that someday just some ruler somewhere could just wake up and decide to invade and take over everything and, and I could wake up and everything in the world would be different? We don't imagine the world that way. It's really hard to kind of wrap our heads around it. But that can happen, and that does happen, and it's happened over and over and over again through most of human history. So when Jesus offers his disciples this description of what's coming, he's drawing on all of that knowledge they have as a people who have been invaded again and again and again. And he says to them, listen, what is coming in the future you might picture as a kind of invasion where one kingdom is going to overtake another kingdom. Like the, the world that you are in right now, the world of the Roman Empire, the world of the American Empire, every world that any of us are living in, the New Testament has a term for this. It's called the kingdom of the world. Right? This kingdom of the world that we're all a part of, it, it, it has all sorts of markers. I mean, if we're honest about it, it's full of a lot of injustice. There's a lot of corruption, there's violence, there's oppression, there's deceit that's baked into the very fabric of how things work. I mean, we're kind of so used to people lying to us from the halls of power that we don't even think about it a lot anymore, we just assume that's the case. It's baked into the pie of how this kingdom goes. 
But Jesus says, listen, that's the world, the kingdom that you know it now. That's the kingdom of the world. But there is a good king out there, and think less Putin, and think more King Arthur of Camelot, who has a plan to take the reins and institute a new rule of justice and equity and freedom and care. There is a good king out there who dreams of a kingdom of justice and equity and care. And even now, that king, that that Arthur, if you will, is out there at work, quietly advancing, quietly taking ground. Right now, through the work of ambassadors who are making the case for him and who are inviting other people to come over and come under his rule. This king is working in the world right now through ambassadors who are making his case and inviting people to come under that new rule. That's what's happening today. But you need to know that a moment is coming and only the king knows when, when the quiet stage is over and he's coming in and he's taking the whole thing. Love and justice will now be the law of the land and evil and injustice are going to get banished. This is the quiet stage. This is the ambassador stage. But a moment is coming when the king is coming in and evil is going out. And that process is, it's slow because this king is good and he's compassionate and he's gracious and he wants to win a lot of hearts so that when he comes in to claim his territory, that day will be a day of joy and celebration for the people living there. That's how he wants it to go. But when that day comes and the king comes all the way in and the kingdom arrives, evil has to get out of the way. It is a real power shift. One kingdom comprehensively replacing another. When the good comes in, the bad has to go. And that kind of overtaking of one world, one kingdom by another world, another kingdom, inherently involves destruction of the old regime. There is no world of justice and good that does not require the destruction of the old regime. So Jesus says to his disciples, you need to know this is where it's going because when that happens, you don't want to be inside evil's house when the roof comes down. You you don't want to be invested in its currency when the currency collapses. Right? I don't want that for you. When the good comes in, the bad goes out, and I don't want you to be invested in the thing that's about to collapse. When I lived up in the Northwest, when I moved to Oregon, I started carrying around sneakers in my car trunk. Now, if you live in the Pacific Northwest, you'll discover something. There's this kind of constant conversation that comes up in just like small talking with people about the next big one, the next big earthquake. Everybody's been expecting this for a really long time. Scientists say it's inevitable. We just don't know when it's going to happen. They, they often say there will only be about 10 minutes between the kind of first eruption and when everything goes to chaos. And, you know, I am a woman who likes fancy shoes. I wear a lot of high heels. And I have this great fear of ending up like the woman in the last Jurassic Park movie who spends like three hours running from dinosaurs in stilettos. You know? <laughs> 
Everybody who watches this movie has said something like, you know, for goodness sake, woman, you know the escape of the dinosaurs is inevitable. The least you could do is wear practical footwear in case you're there that day. Right? Like, I don't want to be that woman. Now, earthquakes and dinosaur escapes, T-Rexes, they don't give a lot of warning. Right? You're just kind of either ready for them or you aren't. I listened to the New York Times coverage last week of this interview with a, a young Ukrainian man who was talking about how two days before Russia's invasion, he had baked a bunch of pies and, and took them to the office to share with his coworkers. And he was like fixated on these pies. He kept saying like, I just baked the pies. You know, I just, I just was doing this really normal thing and, and everything wasn't supposed to change right after you bake pie. And this is exactly what Jesus is describing in, in verses 26 to 28. He calls on these two stories in the Old Testament. He says, in Noah's day, people were eating and drinking and marrying and being married right up until the day Noah entered the ark. In the days of Lot, people were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, and building. Normal life was going on right up until the moment that everything shifted. And Jesus says, this is how it's going to be when God's kingdom comes and pushes the old kingdom out. It's going to be normal until it's not. And because Jesus is loving and good and not a cruel dictator, he wants everybody to be prepared because if you're prepared, there's no problem. If you are ready, this is going to be the best day of your life and not a disaster. The best day of your life. So Jesus says, I want you to know it's coming so that this is the best day of your life and I want you to tell everybody else so it's the best day of their life too. The only question that remains, like how do you get prepared? But what is Jesus saying about getting prepared? If one kingdom is taking over another and you want that to be the best day of your life, what do you do? Well, I heard a, a news story a while back about a church in Missouri that had installed a, a retractable roof so that they could all gather and, and be prepared and pull the roof back when Jesus showed up. <laughs> I don't think that is what Jesus is getting at here. I mean, notice what he says in, in verses 34 and 35. He says, I tell you that on that night, two people will be in the same bed and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain and one will be taken and the other left. In other words, people are going to be doing their jobs. They're going to be sleeping or whatever they do in bed. Everyone's going to be doing their normal thing. And the difference between the person prepared and the person not prepared is not whether or not they're going to show up to their job in the morning. Right? Like Jesus is not painting a picture here where the prepared people are the ones with the retractable roof staring at the sky. That's not where he's going with this. Where Jesus is going with this is he's saying to his disciples, this is a call to live every day of your life on the edge of your seat, fully aware that the world as you know it could end abruptly and that the values and the hierarchies and the currency of the world you're living in now will immediately go away with it. Live every day knowing that the world as you know it is about to change, it could change today, and the values and the hierarchy and the currency could go. And if, if you live with that awareness, like if you know that that is the state of the world, you will be using everything you've got, your time, your energy, your money, everything, to invest in the kingdom that's about to come in and not the one that's about to go out. 
And Jesus gets really specific here, and he, he names two high-risk behaviors, two behaviors that Jesus identifies as like the major obstacles, the major risk factors of people who are going to be unprepared. And these are the two he names. Um, the first is in verse 31. He says, don't come back inside the house for your possessions. Don't come back in the field to get your stuff. High-risk behavior number one is people who are trying to preserve their possessions. Now, it, it's a mistake to, like, over-literalize this. Jesus is not envisioning a scenario where, like, you're actually having a literal moment where you're like, should I go back inside for my stuff? Jesus has arrived. That's not what he's talking about here. What Jesus is talking about is something he talks about over and over and over in other parts of Luke about your relationship with your stuff and his concern that all of these ordinary tasks of eating and drinking and buying and selling and building and planting, they're not inherently bad. There's nothing wrong with them. But there's a problem that most people occupy their whole lives with those things and don't have time to prepare for the kingdom's arrival at all. This is like maybe the most dominant theme in the teachings of Jesus and Luke. It's not that buying or selling or planting or building are bad. It's that most people get so preoccupied with building the life they want and acquiring the life they want that they don't have time to concern themselves with the things God's kingdom is concerned about. They're back in the house with their stuff and they miss the entire project. And then in verse 33, Jesus ratchets up the challenge even higher, and he says this, whoever tries to preserve their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will preserve it. High-risk behavior number one is being too occupied with possessions, stuff, building things. High-risk behavior number two is trying to preserve your own life. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, I think there are two big things he probably has in mind here. Number one is just trying to be overly concerned with your own safety, right? Making your life about your comfort, your safety, and your well-being. But I think we can push, broaden it out a little and say, in a broader sense, seeking to preserve your life is about self-fulfillment. Preserving what you want out of your life. As long as your life is all about you, preserving what you value, fulfilling what you want, as long as all of your time and energy is being consumed by gaining and by building what this kingdom holds as valuable, Jesus says you're in a dangerous position. You're investing in currency that's about to collapse. Being prepared for the actual kingdom change that Jesus is describing, he believes is going to take everything you've got. It's going to mean living a life that isn't about you at all anymore. A life that isn't about your comfort or your pleasure or your self-fulfillment. It's going to mean investing yourself, investing your time. Scott pointed out a couple weeks ago to some of us that time is today's money, right? Investing your money, but also your time and everything you've got in a future that hasn't arrived yet, which just has to look different from your neighbors because they're investing in a different world, right? If it doesn't look any different from the rest of the people around you, chances are really good you're still invested in the same project. I mean, Jesus explicitly says this is going to mean living your life with a sense of being constantly displaced, Never feeling fully at home. Always having one foot out the door. Living out of step. Doing things that feel weird and feel risky. 
never fully settling, teaching your children to live that same kind of risky, displaced, not-at-home kind of life. That's what Jesus is envisioning. You know, I had a conversation a while back with someone in my own life who, who cares a lot about me personally, who was looking at my life and, and questioning a lot of the choices that I, I have made. And it was a very loving conversation, but this person had real concerns about my life choices. And after we kind of went back and forth for a while, she finally said to me, well, as long as it makes you happy. And it was at that moment I realized how fundamentally we had misunderstood each other. I did not choose my life because I think this is the happiest life for me. I didn't choose it because I think I will be most fulfilled doing it. I chose it because Jesus says those who lose their life will save it. And I believe him. I believe him. And I get that that sounds crazy and odd to most people, even most Christians. This person I was talking to was a Christian. This is not the way we are accustomed to talking to each other. And I get that it sounds crazy. But for myself, I believe Jesus. I believe a new world is actually coming at a day that I won't expect it. And I am all in on that kingdom. I'm all in on it. My life, my happiness, my sense of home, my health, everything I've got, I'm wagering it on him. Whatever time, whatever courage, whatever resources, whatever I have to invest, I am investing in that kingdom, waking and sleeping for whatever days I have. And my like, worst fear in telling you all this as your pastor is that you would admire that, right? Because that's not what it's about. I'm telling you this today because I believe that is what being a follower of Jesus is and because I think you all have a choice to make too. I believe on the basis of Jesus' teaching, that is what following him means. All in, a all-encompassing whole life wager that the story of the world is what he says it is. And Jesus doesn't say there's a tiered system here. This isn't for pastors. This isn't for super spiritual people. This is for all of his followers. He says those who seek to preserve their life, who perceive seek to preserve their home in this passing kingdom are going to lose it. They're going to lose their currency. But those who lose their life, those who are willing to go all in, every breath, put every breath on the table for this kingdom that's coming, they will be the ones celebrating on the day the world turns. They will be the ones saying, this is the best day of my life. That's the story Jesus tells his followers. And if you read the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, there's no question they believe him. The only question for the rest of us is, do we? Let's pray together. Jesus, we trust you, we believe you, but in all honesty, we also confess sometimes it's hard to.
Some days I wake up in the morning and, and just believe with every fiber in my being that this is the story I'm a part of. And two hours later, I find myself less sure. Is it really worth this? Is it really going to happen this way? So we just honestly bring you our trust and our doubts. Our wagers and our uncertainty about those wagers. Our dreams, our desires. And this growing desire that is the work of your spirit within us to surrender those dreams and desires to pursue the dreams of God. Gather up all of these things, Lord. The questions, the hopes, the courage, and the fear within us. Turn them, toward, turn all of us toward you. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done. And we pray that knowing that is a dangerous prayer. For when one kingdom comes, another goes, and the whole world is never the same. Ready us for it. In the name of Jesus, the king that's coming, we pray. Amen.